we have now reached lesson 67 in the radiant light covering the seerah of our Prophet and every single class is a special class because any class that speaks about the Holy Prophet is special. However, in this class it's going to be a little bit different from the previous classes in that we're going to take a slight detour in looking at one of the most illustrious companions of the companions of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and I'll keep that person's identity a secret now until we get to that part. So as we said before, the very first book of Seerah is what book? Not before Ibn Ishaq. What is before Ibn Hisham? The Quran. The Qur'an is the very first book of seerah because we find a lot of the details of the seerah within the Qur'an. Now, of the seerah episodes covered in the Qur'an in the most detail is perhaps the story of, Surah, of the Battle of Badr within Surah Al-Anfal and other verses in Surah Al-Imran and elsewhere. But the story of Badr is outlined within Surah Al-Anfal from the beginning to the end. And usually in the larger works of Sirah, after they talk about the Battle of Badr and all of its details, they conclude by looking at the story of Badr as it is presented in Surah Al-Anfal. So they present verse after verse linking each verse with the specific incidents and details that are mentioned in the books of Sirah, but not mentioned explicitly within the Qur'an. Now, we're not going to do that. We're not going to read all of Surah Anfal as our Sirah class for today. But I would invite you at this stage to go open to chapter Al-Anfal and read it from the beginning to the end and link each verse with what we've been talking about for the past couple of months. So we are still in that Badr environment in the sense that we're talking about the post-Badr environment. The immediate aftermath of that decisive victory given by Allah Ta'ala to the Prophet Sallallahu and the Muslims on what is called the day of Furqan, the day in which truth was made clear from falsehood. Some of the aftermaths of the Battle of Badr were spoken about last week and the week before when we looked at the effects of the victory on the minds of the Munafiqeen and the after effects on the idol worshippers of Quraysh when the news came back that so many of their chiefs were cut down in battle. Among these after effects of Badr is that the Muslims for the very first time have engaged in direct combat after permission was granted to them by Allah Ta'ala. 
This is the very first incident where there is hand-to-hand combat with arms, not just skirmishes here and there. Number two, from the immediate aftermath of Badr, the Mushrikun of Quraysh realized that the Muslims are now a force to be reckoned with. And they have to take steps to prevent their growth, to prevent the spread of Islam. And because they suffered this defeat at Badr, it didn't mean that they're going to go quietly back to Mecca and nurse their wounds. No, now they realize this is a threat to them and they're going to prepare themselves for a full-scale operation to deal with the Muslims. That's why we see Uhud and that's why we see the other Ghazawat and that is why the Medinan period is roughly a story of battle after battle with incidents taking place in between them. Another thing from the aftermath of Badr is that virtually all of the Mushrikun remaining in Medina embraced Islam after Badr. Of course, we know about the Muhajirun migrating to Medina. We know about the Ansar who came from the Aus and the Khazraj. We know about the Jewish tribes that were in Yathrib before it became Medina. We know about the Mithaq of Medina, that covenant between the Prophet the Muhajirun and the Ansar with the Jewish tribes. But one group that we haven't talked a lot about is the group of Mushrikun, of idol worshippers, that remained from the Aus and the Khazraj who had yet to become Muslim. We're now in the second year after the Hijrah, and there were still some people from the Aus and the Khazraj holding out, not becoming Muslim. They weren't in a position of enmity towards the Prophet ﷺ per se, but they were holding out. But after the Battle of Badr, more and more of those people who were holding out became Muslim. So pretty much after the Battle of Badr, you had the Muslims, the Jewish tribes, and the Munafiqun. The Mushrikun, those that remained in their shirk, either became Muslim and converted after Badr, or they pretended to convert and joined the Munafiqun. But after Badr, there were no overt Mushrikun just living in Medina like this. And this actually gives us a very important lesson. And that is the lesson of social proof and social pressure leading people to Islam. We would like to think that most of humanity are guided by reason and they are free of bias and desires and they pursue the truth for truth's sake without outside influences. But the majority of people aren't like that. The majority of people only embrace truth when there's some social pressure, there's some social push that eases them towards that direction of truth. And this is why you look in the Quran, So after the Fath, what happens? What happens after the opening of Mecca? So it's after the Fath of Mecca that people embrace Islam in droves. Why do you have so few people becoming Muslim in Mecca during the initial 13 years of the da'wah? It's because they didn't have 
force. They didn't have political authority. So it was a question of sincerity and truth. Those individuals whom Allah chose and guided to the truth in that stage of, of, of istidaaf, of weakness. So Islam grew, more people converted after Badr because that was a kind of social pressure. And after that social pressure, there came Iman growing and, and certainty developing over time. There are people who become Muslim for a variety of reasons. And if you look at it from the outside, you might say they're not really sincere in their reasons for embracing Islam. And nevertheless, we accept people at face value. We give them the rights that are owed to Muslims. But if Allah Ta'ala has put Iman in their heart, even if it's as small as a mustard seed, that seed will grow and it will flourish and they will become sincere inshaAllah Ta'ala. And that's what we see with many people who became Muslim right after Badr. It took time for them. And there are people who become Muslim in the outlying tribes among the Bedouins. And we're going to hear their stories too about how they became Muslim, yet they're still struggling with their jahili tendencies and Bedouin uh, temperaments, right? They still, they had Iman, but they also had these other uh, follies. Another lesson or after effect of Badr is that the Mushrikun who converted, either we said they converted sincerely or they converted insincerely. So that means that the Munafiqun became an actual phenomena. Before that, it was very, very low key. It was scattered with some individuals. But now after Badr, you have the Munafiqun as an actual social phenomena. It was very subtle and hidden pre-Badr, but post-Badr the numbers increased. In fact, it is narrated that Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, who is the Ratsul Munafiqin, the leader of the hypocrites, he was the eldest chieftain of Yathrib, and he thought that he was going to take power before the Prophet migrated. When he heard that Zayd ibn al-Haritha arrived from Badr saying that the Muslims were victorious, one narration says that Abdullah ibn Ubay said, it appears that the matter has now been settled. Meaning, this appears to be a done deal. I'm not going to be the leader. It's not going to happen. So, he's made his choice to be a munafiq. Someone who, because of his weakness and inability to take power by force, pretends to be a Muslim and so dissension, waiting for that opportunity for the, the Muslims to be defeated by who he perceived to be a more powerful force, Quraysh. Hopefully he's, he's looking for Quraysh to rise and defeat the Prophet ﷺ so he can be installed as the leader of Medina, returning it back to Yathrib. So that's now a phenomena that we'll hear more and more about. So in the books of Sirah, they talk about this. The after effects of Badr, they talk about the link between all of the events and the verses revealed in Surah Al-Anfal. And they also talk at this juncture about the fada'il and manaqib, the virtues and laudable qualities of Ashabu Badr, the Badriyun, those people who participated at the Battle of Badr. How many were they? So they say 313, 314. So 
you have entire books written just on the virtues of the people of Badr. Imam al-Barzanji has a beautiful poem which is just about the manaqib, the virtues of the people of Badr. Their names and what they did and their virtues. And in, at this stage in the seerah, many of the authors of seerah cite those hadith which speak about the unique virtues of the people of Badr. So we have this collective, we call them the Sahaba, the companions of the Prophet And the companions after the prophets and messengers are the best of humanity. And the reason why, even if you look at an individual companion, maybe that companion has not spent as much money as someone has today. Or this Sahabi or that Sahabi has not prayed as many raka'at as someone who came after them. Maybe there's people who came after them who've done more salat and more zakat and more sadaqah and even more tilaw of Qur'an and dhikr. But the Sahaba, from the best of them to the least of them, they're all exalted. They're all people of virtue and superiority over others for one reason, and that is the reason behind their name. What do we call them? Sahaba. Because they have what no one else has. Suhba. They have suhba, companionship with the Prophet Sheikh Muhammad al-Qandusi, rahimahullah, he says that they have what no one else has. They prayed salat behind Rasulullah They broke their fast they had their iftar with the Prophet ﷺ. They prayed Jumu'ah with the Prophet ﷺ. They handed over their zakat to the blessed hand of the Prophet ﷺ. min amwalihim sadaqatan tutahiruhum wa tuzakkihim biha wa salli alayhim inna salataka sakanun lahum. Allah Ta'ala tells the Prophet ﷺ to take the zakat from them. And... They performed Hajj with the Prophet ﷺ. They carried out the manasik in his company. And they waged jihad under his banner ﷺ. No one else has that honor. And that's why they are Sahaba. And although they are a collective with that virtue, and they all share in that virtue, they also have their internal hierarchy. They have their own internal hierarchy where there are some better than others, some superior to others. Now, at the head of them, we have the Khulafa al-Rashidun, the four Khulafa, and their, their fada'il and their superiority is ranked in order of their rule. Outside of them, you have the ten Sahaba promised paradise. Outside of them, you have other groups. You have the Muhajirun, and you have the Ansar, right? You have those people who became Muslim after Fath Mecca and those who were Muslim before Fath Mecca. You have those who were Sahaba from day one and sacrificed and struggled. And then you have those who were Tulaqa, meaning they were initially enemies. They were initially in combat. And the Prophet ﷺ forgave them and gave them a general amnesty after the conquest of Mecca. When he said to them, You're free. 
Go, you are free. Like Abu Sufyan, right? So you can't say that the Tulaqa, who are Sahaba, are going to be at the same rank as Abu Bakr as-Siddiq, or Mus'ab ibn Umayr, or uh, Mu'adh ibn Jabal, or these senior Sahaba. And then we have Sahaba who we don't know much about at all, other than their names, right? Anyhow, all of this is to say that the Badriyun are a group within this group of virtue and excellence. And they are set apart from those who did not participate in Badr, having certain unique qualities and virtues. In the books of Sirah, we have the hadith where the angel Jibreel comes to the Prophet and says, what is your view about Ashabu Badr? Those people who participated at Badr. And the Prophet says, that they are khiyaruna, they are the best of us. And then Jibreel alayhi salam said to him, likewise, we view the angels, we view the angels who were at Badr as khiyaruna, as the best of us. So you see these, these twin hierarchies. The Badriyun from the Ashab are the best of the Sahaba, generally speaking. And the angels who are participating in Badr were the best of the angels. Among Allah's angels, whose numbers only Allah knows. In another hadith in Bukhari, we have the hadith of Haritha ibn Suraqa. He was among the early shuhada who were struck down at Badr. He was hit by a stray arrow in the throat. And the hadith in Bukhari mentions that the uh, mother of Haritha, she asked the Prophet wasallam, Ya Rasulullah, tell me about my son, Haritha. Is he in Jannah? Is he in Jannah? You know, we know these hadith, you know, whoever is killed, fi sabirillah, is in Jannah. But this is, Islam is, these hadith are in, they're live. <laughs> they're live. They're not something recorded that they're reading. They're hearing it in the moment. She asked Rasulullah is my son in Jannah? And he says to her, no. Bel, rather, he is in Jinan. He is not just in one garden, because Jannah is garden. He is in gardens of paradise, and he is in Al-Firdausul A'la, which is the supreme location within the gardens of paradise. So this is the glad tidings she gives to the mother of Haritha ibn Suraqa, one of, of the Ashab al-Badr. We also have a hadith, and the hadith is tied into an event that we'll explore way later towards the end of the seerah. And it's the story of the companion known as Hatib ibn Abi Balta'a. It's a very important story. It has a lot of uh, relevance, a lot of fiqhi points are derived from this hadith. I won't go through the whole hadith, but it's quite long. Uh, basically, Haltib, shortly before the conquest of Mecca, he had an error of judgment. And he sent a letter, a secret letter to someone to deliver to some of the people of Mecca, telling them that this attack is going to come the Muslims are going to be victorious. There's nothing you can do about it. So can you, some of you please look after my properties and ensure that they don't get seized. You know, he's appealing to certain uh, tribal relationships and connections. 
as, as he saw it, it was inevitable that the Muslims are going to be victorious. So he was just sending this letter to say, can one of you please look after some of my property? But obviously that's valuable intelligence being communicated before the, they, the Muslims have even marched out. Imagine that letter gets back to Quraysh and they have days in advance to prepare for the Prophet them and the Muslims. Anyhow, Allah Ta'ala revealed that this letter was sent and he sent some of the Sahaba to intercept it, uh, catching the young lady who had it uh, in her belongings. Actually, the hadith says it was in a little wooden container and it was braided inside of her hair. And when that was brought back and the Prophet ﷺ spoke with Haltib, you know who else was there? Umar bin Khattab radiallahu anhu. And you, you always know what's going to happen when this situation unfolds. Umar sees this as an act of espionage. And he wants to punish him as someone guilty of espionage, of someone who is communicating sensitive intelligence to the enemy. So he asked the Prophet ﷺ to allow him to strike him down. And the Prophet ﷺ says to Umar, Ya Umar, how do you know? Ma yudrik? Perhaps Allah has looked at the people of Badr, because Hatib was a Badri. Perhaps Allah has looked at the people of Badr and He said to them, Do as you please because you are forgiven. Do as you please for you are forgiven. This doesn't mean that the people of Badr can do whatever they want. What it means is that Allah Ta'ala looks upon them with mercy and forgiveness and their sacrifice and participation at Badr outweighs any kinds of sins and mistakes and errors of judgment they may make. Doesn't mean that those things don't require seeking forgiveness and tawbah if they were to err. But Badr outweighs all of these things. So that speaks to the virtues of the people of Badr radiallahu ta'ala anhum. So now we, we come to this interval between Badr and Uhud where there are births, there are some deaths, and there are some marriages. So we know that when the Prophet ﷺ left for Badr, Uthman ibn Affan anhu did not go. Why didn't he go? Because his wife was sick. His wife, Ruqayya, the daughter of the Prophet ﷺ, was gravely ill. And Uthman wanted to go to Badr, but could not. He attended to his wife taking care of her. And that is why he is considered among the people of Badr. And he even received some of the ghanima because that is the only thing that was holding him back, was caring for the daughter of Rasulullah And we know that she died as the Muslims were making their way back to Medina from Badr. Obviously, the Prophet and his family grieved. And obviously, the Muslim community at large grieved over her loss. Yet, the Prophet ﷺ had another daughter. And as one leaves this dunya and leaves her father and her husband, the other one, the youngest, is to get married. And this daughter, 
What is her name? Sayyida Fatima Az-Zahra Salamullahi Alayha wa radiyallahu anha. Sayyida Fatima radiyallahu anha is to get married. And the marriage took place either in Safar or Dhul Hijjah. Uh, a lot of the authorities say it was in the, in the month of Dhul Hijjah. And that would mean that it took place quite soon after Badr. Because Badr took place in Ramadan. So you know between Ramadan and Dhul Hijjah, it's not that long. It's a few months. So we come to that story in the seerah. We have the story of the marriage, but we also have the story of Sayyidah Fatima herself. It's important to know who she is. And it's not, it hasn't been too long since she was actually, the, 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 the date of her birth had passed a short while ago. So Sayyidah Fatima gets married in the month of Dhul Hijjah. And the story is that the Prophet ﷺ did not make a formal contract as of yet. And during this period after Badr, there were others who expressed interest in marrying her. Chief among them, Abu Bakr as-Siddiq anhu and Umar bin Khattab anhu. Both of them went to the Prophet ﷺ to ask to marry Sayyidah Fatima. The Messenger of Allah وسلم, did not say to them, no. He said to them, putting them off by saying that he's waiting for guidance. He's waiting for some inspiration and guidance concerning the matter of his daughter and who she marries. He didn't say no to them. He's waiting for guidance. Now, Abu Bakr wanted to marry her. Omar wanted to marry her. But there's nothing else to say after that. So they go and they speak to another companion, the one we know as Abu Turab or Sayyiduna Ali radiallahu anhu, Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu anhu wa karramallahu wajha. Abu Bakr and Umar go to Sayyidina Ali and they encourage him, he's younger than them, they encourage him to go to the Prophet sallallahu and make a proposal. But Imam Ali was initially very hesitant. And that is because he is Abu Turab. He was very, very poor at the time. He had a very small house that wasn't too far from the house of the Prophet Wasallam. Uh, but he was very poor. And he was shy to go and make that proposal. But he went to the Prophet Wasallam. He, uh, he's, he's still very courageous. And he went and he proposed. And the Prophet ﷺ asked him when he proposed, What do you have? What does he mean by that? Mahar. What do you mean? What do you have means what mahar do you have? What bridal gift? What, what property or what do you have that you can offer as a bridal gift to my daughter? SubhanAllah, how much do you think Sayyidah Fatima is worth? Is there a numerical value you can attach there's there's no <laughs> there's no value in dunya there's no dollar amount you can put down as a worthy mahar a worthy bridal gift in the sense that this is what uh, merits her rank we'll put it that way so he asked ali what do you have and ali says i have a horse and i have some armor He's very poor, but he has a horse and he has armor. 
The Prophet wasallam says, As for your horse, you will need that. As for your armor, go and sell it. So Ali radiallahu anhu says, I went and I sold my armor for 480 dirhams. And then I came to the Prophet wasallam and I put all of the money in his lap. And the Prophet wasallam takes this money, he takes the handful, and he calls out to Bilal radiallahu anhu and says, Ya Bilal, go get us some perfume with this money. Imam al-Nasai narrates this hadith. So he picks up the money, gives it to Bilal, tells him to go and with it buy perfume. 480 dirhams, is that a lot of money? It's not. It's not. It's not a lot of money. It, it's not a, a totally insubstantial amount. It's not minuscule, but it's definitely not a large amount. Consider that they use it to buy perfume. Now, one hadith mentions a little more. Uh, in Bayhaqi's Dala'il al Nabuwa, there's a hadith which mentions that uh, the 480 uh, dirhams, it was decreed that two thirds of that would be for perfume and one third will go for clothes. So the mahar went for perfume and clothing. Two thirds for perfume, one third for clothing. And the Prophet says in this hadith recorded by Imam al-Bayhaqi, uh, rather it's in his sunnah, not his dala'il. He says, purchase much perfume for Fatima as she is distinguished among women. So there's something worthy of reflection here. How do lots of people look at the mahar in this day and age? A lot of people look at the mahar as a kind of security. They ask for a lot, and the way the mahar is framed, um, with a lot of people, not, not everyone, the mahar is framed as this uh, security. You know, ask for a lot because you never know. You know, things might not work out, and you need this money so you can get out of the situation. That's how the mahar is framed uh, with a lot of people. It's seen as this security. But you see that that conception does not apply here. The Prophet ﷺ, uh, took the mahar and spent it on perfume and clothes. There was no idea conveyed of her keeping the mahar as a security just in case things don't work out between her and Sayyidina Ali. It was a matter of using the, the money for perfume and for clothing, which is for the married life, for the family life between her and him, radiallahu anhuma. So what makes this story actually even more beautiful than it already is, is that when you go back to the hadith, when he asks him, what do you have? Adi says what? I have a horse and I have armor. And the Prophet wasallam says, take the armor and sell it. Where did Adi get the armor from in the first place? He received it from the Prophet So imagine you give someone a gift. You tell them to sell the gift and use that money. This is the generosity of the Prophet It was given to him by Rasulullah What do we know about this armor? In Imam al-Bayhaqi's Dala'il al-Nubuwa, he mentions a hadith which says, that the particular armor that Ali had and sold, 
was called Hutamiyah armor. Why is it called Hutamiyah? They say it was called Hutamiyah armor because it was very heavy. And as a heavy body armor, it was layered in such a way that if someone were to pierce or were to uh, stab one with a spear or, or strike them with a sword, this, the armor was so thick and heavy that it would crush the spear or break the sword. This is heavy body armor. It's not light body, body armor. It's heavy. It's of great value. And it is said that the marriage took place either in the month of Safar or either the month of Dhul Hijjah. There's a difference of opinion about that. If we say it was Dhul Hijjah, that means that it took place very shortly after Badr. And if it's Safar, that's later on. So we have some details we'll share. Uh, the, the Walima of Sayyidina Ali and Sayyida Fatima, we'll, we'll read a little bit about that, inshallah. Before we do that, though, we want to introduce the daughter of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Allah Ta'ala, just as He honors us in speaking about the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that is a, a, a tashrif for us to speak about him. It is also an honor to speak about the Sayyida Nisa al-Alameen, the, the leader of the women of all the world, Sayyida Fatima al-Zahra, Salamullahi alayha. And when you hear the names of some of the Ahl Bayt, like Sayyidina Ali, you hear phrases like Karram Allahu Wajha. And when you hear Sayyida Fatima, you hear Salamullahi alayha or alayha salam. This is within our Sunni tradition. This is how Imam al Bukhari refers to her in his Sahih. He says, Alayha salam. And that is the way of Ahl Sunnah. We don't shy away from that, that dua of alayha salam or alayhi salam. And it's permissible for, for them because it's not restricted to the Anbiya. So speaking about Sayyida Fatima, we start with the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam who says, إِنِّي تَارِكٌ فِيكُمْ مَا إِنْ تَمَسَكْتُمْ بِهِ لَنْ تَضِلُّ بَعْدِي كِتَابُ اللَّهِ وَعِتْرَتِي أَهْلَ بَيْتِي لَنْ يَتَفَرَّقَا حَتَّى يَرِدَا عَلَيَّ الْحَوْضِ He says sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, I am leaving among you two weighty things. If you hold fast to them, you cling firmly to them, you will never go astray. The first, he says, Kitabullah, the book of Allah, Al-Quran, and Itrati, my family. He says, the two shall never separate until they appear before me at the Hawd. That's a very deep hadith. It's a very deep hadith. It's layers of meaning in that hadith. But what that means is that the embodiment of the, the meanings of the Qur'an and the Qur'anic character is found uh, expressed within the choice members of the Ahl Bayt. They are the expression of كَانَ خُلُقُهُ Quran, And they are aspects of that. And that's one of the meanings of this hadith. The Ahl Bayt have numerous virtues. Entire works have been written on the virtues, the manaqib of Ahl Bayt. Uh, we won't go through all of them, of the famous ones, but this hadith uh, should suffice. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam to say, قُلْ لَا أَسْأَلُكُمْ عَلَيْهِ أَجْرًا إِلَّا الْمَوَدَّةَ فِي الْقُرْبَةِ 
He tells the Prophet ﷺ to say, I do not ask for any fee for this invitation. I don't ask for any wage for this da'wah, except love among my close relatives. That's what he asks of us, that we have love for his family. In a hadith recorded by Imam Ahmad in his Musnad, the Prophet says, Wallahi, he says, By Allah, Iman will not enter the heart, Iman will not enter the heart of a Muslim until he loves you for Allah's sake and for my relationship to you. Speaking about the Ahlul Bayt. So, who are they? Who are the Ahlul Bayt? That's a lengthy conversation. And there's a legal aspect to that in terms of who cannot receive zakat. And then there is uh, a broader historical aspect uh, in terms of d- identifying who are the Ahlul Bayt. Uh, to summarize uh, a, prolou- a multitude of opinions about the identity of Ahlul Bayt, we would say that it includes the wives, it includes the children. It includes broadly Banu Hashim and Banu Abdul Muttalib. It can even include, some ulama even expand the circle to include Quraysh as a whole. And some take the circle even further and say, the muttaqun among the ummah, the pious among the ummah, based on a hadith, there's some weakness in that hadith. But there's different ways the ulama have described the identity of Ahlul Bayt. What we would say, and what many of the ulama say, is that all of those are true uh, to a certain extent. And you can look at the Ahlul Bayt as a series of concentric circles, right? So you have this very large circle, and then you have a smaller circle within that circle, and then another smaller circle, even smaller, and then another one even smaller, until you get this uh, center, smallest circle that is the cream or the essence the elite of the Ahlul Bayt. So you can expand them greatly. And we would say that in the center, that smallest circle, would be the Ahlul Kisa, or those identified by the Prophet ﷺ as being uh, the closest of his family. In the hadith of the Kisa, when some of the people challenged the Prophet ﷺ, the Christians of Najran, and the Prophet ﷺ, uh, brought forth his family. Allah Ta'ala reveals in the Quran, قُلْ تَعَالُوا نَدْعُونَ أَبْنَاءَنَا وَأَبْنَاءَكُمْ وَنِسَاءَنَا وَنِسَاءَكُمْ وَأَنفُسَنَا وَأَنفُسَكُمْ ثُمَّ نَبَتَهِلْ فَنَجَعَلْ لَعْنَةَ اللَّهِ عَلَى الْكَاذِبِينَ He says, subhanahu wa ta'ala, to the Prophet ﷺ, tell them, come, let us come, and we call our children, and you call your children. We call our women folk and you call your women folk. You call yourselves and we call ourselves. We all come together and we collectively invoke the curse of Allah upon whoever's lying, the mubahala. When that happened, the Prophet ﷺ brought Sayyidina Ali, Sayyidina Fatima, and their two children, Imams Hassan and Hussein. And he wrapped them in his kisa, his shaw, and he says, Ha'ulai ahlu bayti. These are the members of my family. So these are the elite. That means that Sayyidah Fatima is at 
is one of the elite of the elite of the Ahlul Bayt, the family of the Prophet Wasallam. So to speak about her virtues really is to speak about the virtues of her father because her f- virtues are really an extension of his virtues. And that is because Rasulullah says in the famous hadith, Fatima bid'atun minni. Fatima is a piece of me. Fatima is a piece of me. Uh, one narration says, Fatima mudghatun minni. Sayyidah Fatima, she, he says, Fatima is a, uh, a morsel, a morsel or piece of me, similar to bid'ah, a morsel from me, a piece of me. And this does not simply reflect the biological relationship. Don't think for one moment that the Prophet ﷺ is only saying that this is his daughter. Everyone knows this is his daughter. So why is he saying that she is a piece of me, a part of me, a morsel from me? He's not simply saying that we have a biological relationship. That much is obvious to everyone. She, radiallahu anha, has the descent directly from him and Sayyidah Khadija. Right? That biological relationship is established. When he says, Bid'atun minni, a part of me, it means that her entire being is infused with this iman, with this ihsan, and this uh, deep piety and devotion. Her heart is a pure heart. Her iman is a towering iman. Her character is a reflection of the Prophet's character, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, And that is why we find in the hadith, it says that no one resembled the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam more khalqan wa khuluqan in both character and physical resemblance than Sayyida Fatima. She is a woman. But there is a resemblance between her and her father physically. And there is a resemblance between her and her father in character. So we have so many hadith about the manaqib of Sayyidah Fatima. In one hadith, the Prophet ﷺ, he says that Fatima is of me. Whatever angers her, angers me. Another narration says, Fatima is of me. Yuribuni ma yuribuha. Whatever disturbs her, disturbs me. One narration says, She is of me. Yu'dhini ma yu'dhiha. Whatever causes offense to her, whatever bothers her, bothers me. Right? One hadith says, Whatever distresses her, distresses me. So she is uh, very unique among the companions, very unique among the family of the Prophet ﷺ even. She was the only child of the Prophet ﷺ to remain with her parents for the first two years of their infancy and not be sent out for suckling and living in the Bedouin environment. We talked about this in the early part of the seerah, 
how that was a historical practice of the Arabs of the time, to send their children out, the Meccans to send their children out to wet nurses in the Bedouin areas to grow up outside of the city environment and suckle and develop their language and their physical skills. That was a norm in society at the time. And even the children of the Prophet ﷺ received this, except for Sayyidah Fatima. She was reared in the household from day one and never left. She never left, even for that brief period of time. That means she's receiving all of her nourishment from Sayyidah Khadija. Another thing is, as we said, she most closely resembled her father out of all of the children. And likewise, she experienced the hardships that her father endured. She did not spend her life as a young child the way most children spend their, spend their lives. She was walking behind him in the streets of Mecca, always worried, looking out for him. Uh, there's hadith about how she is uh, defending him as he's being attacked. There's a hadith mentioning how when the Prophet ﷺ is at the, at the Kaaba making salat, and they pour the camel entrails over his blessed back and shoulders. It was she who went over there and pulled the entrails off. Young child. This was her, alayhi salam. So this bond that is between her and her father is not limited to the biological bond. It was also a bond of iman. And we see that the Prophet ﷺ gave her extra attention and extra reverence. When you look at the lives of the children, they were short lives. But you see something in the relationship between him and her that you do not see with the others. For instance, the hadith tells us that whenever she will walk inside of the home and he is sitting down, she, he would stand up for her. This is out of the ordinary. He did not stand up for people. But when she comes in, he would stand up for her and embrace her and greet her. This is a special distinction. Likewise, the Prophet ﷺ, we said, uh, she most closely resembles him in form and in character. She used to walk like him as well. She will walk in a similar manner to his walking. And this is all just in the relationship they had in this life. She has herself virtues that extend beyond the dunya and go into the hereafter and into Jannah. We have the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ from Ibn Abbas. He relates that he said that there are four women who are the Sayyidat, they are the leaders or the chief ladies of the alameen, of the world, of the realms. Who are these four ladies who are the, the, the archetypical ladies of Jannah, of this world and the next? He mentions Maryam. He mentions Asiya, the wife of Fir'aun. He mentions Khadija, his beloved wife. And lastly, he mentions Fatima. He says that these four ladies are the most superior of all women in the world. So you look at all of the virtuous women of the world, and there are many throughout our history. Of all of them, 
these four are the most superior. Is there a hierarchy among these four? Is there one who is more superior than the other three? This is an area where some of the ulama debated. Some of them said that this was Khadija. You even had some saying Aisha. But the soundest view is that of these four, the most superior of them in rank is Sayyidah Fatima. Sayyidah Fatima, the daughter of Rasulullah wasallam. There's a lot to be said here. Now, I want to just give you a, a, a little sampling of something. Whenever something is important in the Arabic language, whenever it's important and significant, it will have a lot of names. That is why in, in Arabic you have lots of names for a horse or a tent or a sword or a camel. These things were always of importance for the Arabs. And Allah Ta'ala gives many, many names for the Day of Judgment because it's an important event. There's dozens of names for, for the Day of Judgment. Likewise, Rasulullah has many names within the Quran and there are several names he mentions of himself in the Sunnah. And Sayyidah Fatima also has many names. And these names are descriptive names. I mean, they come from descriptions of her character, her way of being. And there's, there's dozens of these names too that the ulama have uh, listed out in their works uh, in praise of her. She is called Sayyida Nisa il Jannah, the, the, the leader of all of the women in Jannah. She is called Fatima, and the ulama say the reason why she's Fatima is because Fatima means one who is weaned, right? Insan yan Fatim, they are weaned from the breast. Why is she called Fatima? It means she's weaned in the sense that she is far removed from the hellfire and far removed from all impurities. So that's the meaning of Fatima itself. She is Zahra, the resplendent. She is Batul, the chaste. She is Mastura, she is concealed. She is also called Raki'a, the one who is frequently in Rukura. And Sajida, the one who is frequently in Sajda. She is called Sa'ima, the one who is frequently fasting. She is also called uh, Al-Mukhaddara, which means the one who prefers seclusion. She is called Baqiya, the one who remains as the child of the Prophet Wasallam. And she is, and this name is one of the most beautiful names she's been given from the hadith, Ummu Abiha. Ummu Abiha. What does that mean? Ummu Abiha means the mother of her father. The mother of her father. Why is Sayyidah Fatima alayhi salam called Ummu Abiha, the mother of her father? Obviously, this is his daughter. So it's not meant in a biological sense. So the ulama explained this name. And they say that she was called Ummu Abiha 
because of her tender care and concern for her father when she was a young child, all through the rest of her life. Does anyone know how old she was when she died, by the way? Yeah, it was in her, was in her 20s. Yeah, she didn't. She, she died six months after the passing of the Prophet ﷺ. So she's Ummu Abiha because of her care and concern for her father during the, the period of da'wah in Mecca and the sacrifices and struggles in Medina. The ulama also say that she is called Umm of her father because it points to this relationship between her and him. Because in, in Arabic, Umm can mean the essence, it can mean the source or the font of something. In Mecca is called Ummul Qura, and the Prophet ﷺ is Ummi, meaning the one who is unlettered and primordial. What this means, uh, by saying Ummu Abiha, it means that she is this reflection of the prophetic character. She is a reflection of Al-Kamalat al-Muhammadiyyah. She is a reflection of his perfections. Right? She is a reflection of everything that it means to be a person of his ummah reflecting his character. If you were to say after the Prophet ﷺ, who are those people that reflect his character as a Muhammadan character, she is definitely at the top of that list. Allah Ta'ala calls the wives of the Prophet ﷺ what? Ummahatul Mu'minin. The, the wives of the Prophet ﷺ are called the mothers of the believers. We know that's not speaking about a biological relationship. It's talking about a connection of character and rank and concern and uh, superiority, all of these things. Likewise with Ummu Abiha, it means that she has a rank over the wives. Because if she is Ummu Abiha, and the wives are Ummahatul Mu'mineen, she has a rank over the wives, which is obviously the case. She is superior to the Ummahatul Mu'mineen uh, in her manaqib and fada'il. And the ulama say that she's a model for women who desire to emulate the Prophet ﷺ in those areas that are exclusive to women. There are aspects of the deen that are particular to women that men don't do. The Prophet ﷺ did not do them because he is a man. So they say that she is the model to emulate in the Muhammadan character in everything that is uh, of feminine nature, that is unique to women. This is what some of their ulama say. But she's also a model for all Muslims, male and female. Because when we look at how she lived, how she married and the nature of the relationship, we see the nature of a happy marriage based on simplicity and taqwa, God-fearingness. Right? So these are just some of the khasa'is and manaqib. In the hereafter, she has other manaqib. Uh, one of the manaqib is that on the Day of Judgment, the hadith mentions that everyone will be ordered to lower their gaze as she crosses the sirat. One hadith mentions that as she crosses the sirat, she will be accompanied by 70,000 hurrain. One hadith mentions this. Another hadith says that on the day of judgment, Sayyidah Fatima will be seated on 
one of the camels of the Prophet wasallam escorted an escort of honor and that she and her family will be the first to enter Jannah. There's a lot of hadith like this. And that leads me to this book, which I would invite all of you to purchase and read. This is, the original work is Al-Iqtul-Luli. This is called The Necklace of Pearls. It's basically the story of the birth, young life, upbringing, and, and marriage, and virtues of Sayyidah Fatima Az-Zahra. This is written by Sayyid Muhammad bin Hassan bin Adawi al-Haddad Rahimahullah who passed away last month The author passed away last month He was from Medina From the family of the Prophet This is a very beautiful It's in Arabic and English in the text And it's a description of her manaqib and fada'in And her life story And what I like about this book is that Because it's a recent book It was written in this this period It's not something from hundreds of years ago The author actually touches on certain modern phenomena And links the character of, of Sayyidah Fatima And how she is in her marriage To ideals that Muslims should strive for in this day and age That they have strayed from Particularly in the area of uh, walimas and, and, and mahar and things like that This is a very good book I would encourage all of you to get it It has a very beautiful introduction and at the end, it also has pages upon pages of just the asma, the names of Sayyidah Fatima mentioned in the different works of Manaqib. This is a good book to have and to read it uh, with your family to get to know this uh, daughter of the Prophet Sayyidah Nisa al-Adimin alayhi salam So that's a bit about her. She gets married in this period. We'll talk about the Walima a little bit next week and then we move on to the other details before we get to Uhud bi-ithnillahi ta'ala wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam The Necklace of Pearls Yeah. I think there was a question. It's to the beginning of the uh, lecture regarding uh, Abdullah bin Laden Sunu. When did, did at that time the Prophet Muhammad know who Rasul Munafiqin was? What was when when was that information revealed to him by Allah Subhanahu wa Taala? Well, it was it was it was later. Okay. It was later because in the beginning he didn't know the names of the, of the Munafiqin, and then Allah revealed them. And then he disclosed them to Hudayf ibn Yaman. Yeah. It was also a process because they weren't all accounted for yet. There was more people to join those ranks. I'm guessing we're going to talk about when he passed away too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Weird.